know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets, holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. This is about the dignity of workers and of people in general. And then that I am a man slogan was about that. And I'm not a boy. I'm not your uncle. I'm a worker. I deserve rights. So many others uh, in the movement basically told me, over and over again. They never thought they'd see this day happen. And so uh, I'm grateful that we were able to get it done. How are we doing it in a way that all of the jobs that are going to be coming from this infrastructure work and from removing these lead service lines, how are we making sure it's going to um, good union jobs and we're uplifting communities in that process? They always say work as instructed as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unsafe. Now, why is that, Greg? It was this remarkable very powerful migratory connection that had connected this part of eastern sort of Appalachian kind of foothills of East Tennessee with um, this Midwestern industrial city during the mid 20th century. Cows can be, I don't want to say the word fun to work with, but cows can be a learning experience and can teach you a lot. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. This week, on the 55th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. while he was in Memphis supporting striking sanitation workers, AFSCME, the union those sanitation workers belong to, released the I Am Story podcast, which retells the gripping story of a labor struggle that rocked a city and altered our history. We'll hear a trailer from the I Am Story podcast. Episode one is available now on all major podcast platforms. Then, on Building Bridges Radio, Mike Honey on Dr. King and his last speech in Memphis. On America's Workforce Radio, Michigan State Senator Darren Camilleri discusses his successful right-to-work repeal bill. Then, We'll hear about green jobs for Rhode Island on the Labor Vision podcast. Roswell Hub is a podcast from a teamster in Roswell, Georgia. Today we feature an episode exploring why must you work as instructed. Then, on the Valley Labor Report, Max Fraser talks about his book Hillbilly Highway. Our last segment today is from the America Works podcast from the Library of Congress, and we'll hear from dairy farm herdsperson Joyce Goodboot. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words. How a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. (laughs) 
I'm Amy Rosenberg. I'm Ken Nash. And we're Building Bridges. First, Dr. Michael Honey, Professor Emeritus of Humanities at the University of Washington, Tacoma, who specialized in African-American civil rights and labor history research and instruction. So I just want you to, to, to kind of set it up for us. Why was there such resistance to King who you said was on this trajectory of really bringing together the basic three strands of uh, uh, civil rights, uh, immigrants, and labor organizing to a systemic view of why these oppressions were happening. But why was there such resistance, and why was King so intent on bringing the struggle to, to Memphis? He wasn't trying to bring it to Memphis. He was taking the Poor People's Campaign from one community to the other. He was on a tour of the southern states when he ended up in Memphis on March 18th of 1968. Uh, He didn't have Memphis targeted particularly, but the local people in Memphis built an incredible movement um, starting on February 2nd when two, two men were killed. Unnecessarily, they were uh, in the back of a sanitation truck. The workers there had poverty wages. They worked at will. They could be fired on a moment's notice. If they got hurt, their problem, no workman's compensation, no union rights, uh, really treated like, um, almost like slaves. And... The white population of Memphis, for the most part, thought this is the way it should be. And at the time, people called it the plantation mentality in the black community, uh, trying to characterize what was going on in the white community. And so that was like the thing that set off this incredible strike of 1,300 black men. There's a podcast coming out tomorrow on April 4th called The I Am story, and you can find it. It's a series of uh, stories about the Memphis strike and about King, the I Am story, put out by AFSCME, the union that was involved in the Memphis sanitation strike. And those men should never have died. It was faulty equipment. They had complained about it over and over again. That truck should never have been on the road. But this was how they were treated all the time, and the mayor then was Henry Loeb, who was a prime example of the plantation mentality. So you mentioned earlier, like, what was the resistance to King trying to tie these issues together? Uh, In Memphis, there was massive anti-communism all through the 40s and 50s and 60s that shut off all the issues. Huge police brutality, like 95% white police force. These were people from the plantation districts. Were, you know, had that plantation mentality. Uh, the evangelical right was right wing was very powerful in Memphis, uh, and there were plenty of people in Memphis who hated King or anything having to do with King. And so this was hostile terrain. The workers themselves called this strike. AFSCME, the union, didn't even know what was happening. But after these deaths. People met on the weekend, and they said, this is it. We're going on strike. And it was a lot like the Montgomery bus boycott 
they had a meeting on a Sunday, and on a Monday, nobody went to work. And so this built up over weeks. Uh, and before Dr. King came in to Memphis, they'd had a police riot uh, attacking marchers. They had the city council turn them out numerous times when they thought they were getting a solution. And they brought King in on March 18th, really because they needed publicity. And King could bring the cameras. And the other thing that he brought was this amazing ability that he had, and he just played some of it, to explain issues in a, in a big framework. So this wasn't just a, a strike about black sanitation workers. This was what he said in the, the volume that I edited of his labor speeches, all labor has dignity. This is about the dignity of workers and of people in general. And then that I am a man slogan was about that. And I'm not a boy. I'm not your uncle. I'm a worker. I deserve rights. When I awoke one morning, there was a feeling in the air. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. Let's go to uh, line number two. And joining us from Lansing, Michigan, the state capital, is uh, Darren Camilleri. Darren is the individual who uh, introduced the repeal of right to work. And it has been signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Let's talk about that repeal. But obviously, you, you've got working class and unions in your blood in your DNA, talk to me about growing up. the uh, the union The union background big big issue in the state of Michigan, right? It's a huge issue. You know, I uh, am the son and grandson of union auto workers. My my dad, uh, you know, when he came here to the U.S. as a kid, him and his family came here because of of good jobs, good union jobs. And uh, eventually, he made his way into Ford uh, and became a, a union auto worker. My mom's dad uh, also is, worked for Ford and, and was a union auto worker. And so, my my life here in this country is because of a, a good and strong union. Talk to me about working this legislation. You took the lead on it. I'm sure that had to be an interesting time for you because you know not everybody is on board with things like this. So, explain that part to us. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've introduced this legislation in the past, knowing that it wouldn't go anywhere with the Republican legislature. But now that we have total control of both houses, you know, we introduced it again, hoping and expecting that we'd be in a position to pass it. But quite frankly, I did not think we'd get it done this quickly. Uh, you know, we were a total unified front in both the House and the Senate, and we were able to get it across the finish line in a matter of, you know, less than two months, essentially. And even though it may seem like that's a pretty quick thing, there are no obstacles. There are plenty of obstacles along the way, including other items that are on our agenda uh, needing to get done, but also the amount of money that was spent against myself and other people in the legislature trying to convince us otherwise. So Americans for, for Prosperity, as well as some you know, right-wing organizations, you know, they sent mailers, they did you know, robocalls and emails to our offices, social media ads, trying to uh, go after me for introducing this pro-worker legislation. You know, Ron Bieber was telling us he worked with you very closely, and, and I know you learned a lot from him. I mean, he's a lifelong UAW member, and, uh, I mean, he grew up in it. And uh, I'm sure there were some parts that you were not acquainted with in the state of Michigan that he guided you through. Can you reflect on that, if you don't mind? 
Absolutely. You know, I learned from a lot of people. Ron is certainly one of those people that I look up to uh, in this movement. And he really shared with me just the best practices and the ways to navigate all these different unions that are part of this this process, right? We're talking about dozens of organizations that all do sometimes have competing agendas uh, and, and want to ensure that they're all at the table in the same way. And so he really was helpful in making sure that I was talking to the right people um, and in making the right moves outside of the legislature to ensure that this happened. And so we were in, in constant communication and I'm very grateful for his leadership. And, and I'm sure that this was a big moment for him having been in the trenches uh, on these fights for so long. And not only Ron, but so many others uh, in the movement basically told me over and over again, they never thought they'd see this day happen. And so uh, I'm grateful that we were able to get it done. We often say on this show it's right to work for less, and it's so important to get that uh, education out there. And, and maybe you can explain that part of the campaign because you said, well, obviously the right-wing lawmakers, oh, workers' freedom. Well, we really don't need unions. Unions are a thing of the past. I mean, we hear that dialogue all the time. But the stats bear it out. You know this, Darren. In, in right-to-work states, safety has gone down. Wages have gone down. I mean, uh, benefits have gone down. Can you, uh, I, I can only imagine that was part of your campaign in the state of Michigan, Darren. Was that right? Absolutely. You know, in our committee testimony, which we had, unlike the Republicans in 2012, we actually went through a, a formal process to be open and transparent about the ways that we passed this law. We talked about the data, and the data is clear. It's on our side. Uh, states that have right to work laws. Their wages for workers are dramatically lower than states that don't. You know, I no disrespect to the my, to my you know fellow Americans in the South, but Michigan doesn't want to compete with states like Mississippi or Alabama that have incredibly low wages, bad healthcare outcomes, and situations for workers that are unsafe. We want to be competing with the best states in the country, and that that those are the states like Minnesota or uh, New York or California that don't have these right to work for less uh, laws on the books. And so mm -hmm. we're now in a much better position than we were previously. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to bend that curve back towards supporting workers again. Well, Darren, I can't thank you enough for, for joining the show, doing what you're doing. We need certainly more people like you, not just in Michigan, but around the country. You take care, stay strong, stay in touch with us. I, I appreciate what, uh, what you've done there. And thanks for coming to the show today. Okay, brother. Great. Thank you so much. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Welcome to Labor Vision. I'm your host, Autumn Giat. Today we are in person uh, at the Rhode Island AFL-CIO offices. And with me today from Climate Jobs Rhode Island are Erica Hammond, our lead organizer, Mike Rolls, the policy director, and Aislinn Hanley, the energy fellow. So thank you guys so much for joining us on the show. Thank you thank for you. having us. Um, I'm really excited to have you on and talk a little bit about what's going on with Climate Jobs Rhode Island. So I guess the, the big thing is, is, what have you done so far? Well, how was 2022? It was a really good year. Yeah, we really good year. had some really big victories in 2022 at the um, thanks to our coalition and mm -hmm. um, I don't know if 
Mike, you'd like to start off with kind of our, our three big victories that yeah. there were in the legislative session? Yeah, we had a lot of victories, but we had the big three, as we like to call them. Um, one is was the main priority uh, coming in. On, on day one, I was handed a piece of legislation and I was told this is what we want to mirror. We got it done. It's it, What it does is it requires strong labor standards and renewable energy projects that are three megawatts or more. It includes um, labor peace agreement uh, requirements and it also includes pathways for apprenticeship and pre-apprenticeship opportunities so that folks who do not have access right now to the workforce are able to kind of get the skills they need to get into the into the trade. So um, it's a way to expand opportunities for people who need the most in the climate transition. So that was one of our big victories. The second one is the Renewable Energy Standard Bill. So it requires um, our electricity uh, to go 100% sourced by renewable energy uh, by 2033. Um, and then the third one was an offshore wind procurement bill where the state is uh, put entering a contract to uh, get 600 to 1,000 megawatts of offshore wind. Um, and they're currently out to bid right now with a with a RFP for offshore wind developers. So big deal if we're going to meet our 100% RAS, we got to get a lot of offshore wind. Absolutely. That's step one. Wow, that's all really super exciting. I know that you have a few other things on deck for this year. One of them is lead pipes, right? Replacing the lead pipes in Rhode Island. Um, Erica, would you be able to speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, so this is another piece of legislation that we're revisiting from last year. It had passed the Senate last year. It hadn't gotten out of the House um, last year. So we are, it's coming back. Um, and what this legislation does is it um, would require that all lead service lines get replaced throughout the state um, at no cost to the homeowners. So um, there's a number of, as, as many folks know, um, lead in our water, lead is has um, detrimental effects for families, um, specifically thinking about younger kids, but really the impact is across the board really significant. Um, and we still in Rhode Island have a significant number of lead. How do we do it in a way that's efficient, um, equitable? How are we really focusing on the communities that have the highest um, number of lead service lines in their communities and really looking at those first um, because they're experiencing the worst impacts of this right now um, and also how are we doing it in a way that all of the jobs that are going to be coming from this infrastructure work and from removing these lead service lines how are we making sure it's going to um, good union jobs and we're uplifting communities in that process so if you want to learn more as always you can like and subscribe to our channel on labor vision you can find us at laborvisionri.org and uh, like us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The facts, dates, and events presented in this video are from the members' best recollection and may not be fully accurate. This video is intended for entertainment purposes only. Always consult with your local union about your rights and duties at your workplace. The opinions shared on this video are our own and do not necessarily represent my employer's positions, strategies, or opinions. All views shared are protected under the National Labor Relations Act. What is going on, everybody? So today I have Greg out of Local 25 in Boston and Norm out of Local 623 in Philadelphia. So when we're talking about working as instructed, they always say work as instructed as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unsafe. Now, why is that, Greg? 
Well, because those would be three exceptions uh, to when you have to work as instructed. So if, if a supervisor or a member of management is telling you to do something illegal, um, like put a hazmat on your truck with no paperwork or work over your DOT hours, um, you have a right to refuse to do so uh, because it would be a violation of the law. Um, if, and then if they're asking you to do something unsafe, obviously uh, walk on a moving belt, uh, go down a chute, um, you know, take out a truck that's unsafe to drive, uh, any of those things, you would have a right to, to refuse to do that. Um, I would always recommend you involve your steward in any of those refusals immediately. Uh, so you have a witness to both them instructing you uh, and and be there for you uh, to help you fight that, that refusal because they'll argue with you about it, of course. Oftentimes when you're in the role of a business agent or a steward, you will get that member that calls you up and says, I got done with my route at four o'clock. I got somewhere to be. Management is instructing me to go help out Bill or John. I don't have to go help them out, right? Now, why is it important to listen to management and work as instructed at that point? Hey, first, I don't understand the whole thing of getting off of work early. You're guaranteed a minimum of eight hours as a driver. You go in there thinking you're going to be a code five. You should never ever take a cool five let me state that now you go in you're rushing through your day because hey i gotta get somewhere we understand we don't live to work we work to live so you go in there you think you're going to rush through your day do a cool five and run home and do whatever you had done planned for the night and then management is saying oh no you're done we need you to go help john we need you we need you to go help bill at that point you're upset then we get the phone call hey i did my route i did my job I should be able to go home. I'm not going to go help. You know, I'm not the one to argue with. I'm going to protect your job and give you the information. First, you are doing yourself a major disservice by rushing to get off early because the only reward you get at UPS for hard work is more hard work. If you can do, say, 200 stops and you're done by 2 o'clock because you have a concert to go to, guess whose number is 200 stops by 2 o'clock every day? That's your new number. You're not doing anything but hurting yourself. And then when you refuse... Oh, I'm not going to go help Bill because he's slow. He always wants help. You're not hurting yourself. When you say no, you're giving the company exactly what they want. They want you to say no. Okay, we're going to take you off the job because you're insubordinate. You're refusing to work. You're sabotaging the operation. You should not rush to get off the job. You should do at least your eight. And when they want you to go help, my favorite statement was, okay, as soon as I get a chance, unless you're instructing me to do it, I would never tell them that. But okay, you want me to go help Bill? As soon as I get a chance, I'll call you when I'm ready. Who says that, that you have to call within an hour, two hours, within a half hour? You call them when you're ready. If you're at 10 hours, okay, I'm ready now. It's too late. All right, I'll bring it in. I'll go home, you know, enjoy my night. But you should never, ever rush to get done early. You're killing yourself. You're killing your fellow teams there. All right. Appreciate you guys. Love you. See you next time. Come on, you poor workers. Good news to you. I'll tell how the good old a battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I
Uh, we're going to switch gears back towards some labor history today. And Max Frazier is an assistant pr professor at the University of Miami's Department of History. His scholarship is based broadly on 20th century American labor and political history, with some regional focus on the South, Appalachia, and the Midwest, and with a topical focus on the white working classes and the politics and culture of popular conservatism. The, the origins of this book was spending time in um, the a small Indiana city of, of Muncie, Indiana, um, okay. which some people might know because it has this um, uh, famous in a small, maybe sort of academic sort of way as being the setting of a very influential book, best-selling book of the 1920s, uh, by a pair of cultural anthropologists named um, Robert and Helen Lynn. They were a husband and wife called Middletown. And Middletown was this big book of cultural anthropology, but it was became a big bestseller. I mean, it was one of those kind of academic books that become a real popular sensation because right. the authors were attempting to do something that hadn't really been done before, which was to write like anthropologists about not some foreign exotic group of people on the other side of the earth, but a, as they called it, a representative American community um, and city. Um, and they chose Muncie, Indiana as a, what they called the sort of um, average kind of American city of that time. Not, not a huge city, not a small town, the sort of demographic average of the country right. in that moment. So repeating that sort of pattern, I went to Muncie for this um, piece of reporting that I did. Many people I spoke to had experiences themselves if they were somewhat older, uh, retired retirees or, or family experiences if they were younger members of that Muncie working class with the South. And how many of their families, they themselves or their families, had come to Muncie um, during the 20th century from sure. parts of the rural Upper South. And the more I asked about it, because I was just, you know, like I said, this wasn't the subject of the article that right. I wrote, but it was something I was curious about. The more it became clear to me, the more I learned that they didn't just all come, that not only they all come from the South, but many of them came from Tennessee and not just Tennessee, but a real remarkable majority of them from East Tennessee and not just East Tennessee, but this one county in East Tennessee, Fentress County and its county right. seat, Jamestown, which today has a population of a thousand people that everybody I spoke to either came from this tiny town, rural town of Jamestown, Tennessee, or knew somebody who had. Um, and it was this remarkable very powerful migratory connection that had connected this part of Eastern sort of Appalachian kind of foothills of East Tennessee with um, this Midwestern industrial city during the mid 20th century. And I never encountered much about that in what little I had already read by that point, or not that little right. actually about American history. I was familiar with the great migration of Black Southerners um, to the Northeast and Midwest and the Pacific uh, 
states and, and West Coast cities, but I had not encountered uh, much about the movement of Southern, Southern Appalachian working people up to the Midwest. And yet the experience, it became clear to me that I encountered in this in these conversations with working people in Muncie for that piece of journalism were reproduced all throughout the region, um, both all throughout other industrial cities of the Midwest, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland, Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio, Akron, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout the sort of rural upper South broadly, the kind of uh, white Appalachian South um, more generally. Thank you so much. So Max Fraser, I really appreciate it. He is the author of upcoming book, Hillbilly Highway, comes out in September. Keep your eyes out for that. Uh, Max, thanks for your thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Adam. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the fourth episode of Shop Talk. Hope it was worth your time. I really appreciate everyone listening. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works episode features excerpts from a longer interview with Joyce Goodboo, a dairy farm manager or herdsperson for the Vincent Farm in Burke, New York. She was interviewed for the library by folklorist Jill Bright as part of the library's Occupational Folklife Project documenting dairy farm workers in New York's North Country. The alarm goes off at 10 minutes to 4. I'm in the barn usually about 5-7 minutes after 4 o'clock. Um, I usually set up the machines to start milking in the parlor at 4.30 and uh, usually I can get started about 20 after. Um, and then I start milking the cows, and my, it takes us until about uh, 8 o'clock to get all the cows milked in the morning. Um, when I shut down in the morning, um, from the morning's milking, then I usually have my calves to feed. Um, and usually I'll have six to eight calves to feed on the, on the most. And usually I can be done about 10.30, 11 o'clock with most of my person work to do and then um, I usually go in between chores and don't have to come back out until three o'clock in the afternoon and then uh, I usually I'll sneak a nap in of course. <laughs> Breakfast for me actually is uh, usually a package of crackers, pop-tarts, something quick like that and I'm usually nibbling on it during milking and then lunch is usually right at noon. Um, supper usually happens after milking. Majority of them are Holsteins. Um, there's about 30 of them are Jerseys. Um, then we have some red and whites, they're purebred red and whites, and then there is a small portion of the herd that are crossbreeds. I've grown up with Jerseys, gotten to really know their personalities, their breed characteristics. Um, they're obviously a smaller type cow. They, I'm a smaller type person. <laughs> Um, you know, no particular reason being income-wise or, you know, butter fats or anything like that. It's just, just like the cow, 
personality-wise. Mm -hmm. We've got one Holstein, actually. She's, uh, I think if I looked her up, I think she's probably 12 years old. You wouldn't know it. And she is my favorite of the Holsteins, just because when I first come here, she got her leg caught in the stanchion, so she tore the tissues on her knee mm. and needed a lot of TLC, a lot of first aid, first aid care. Cows can be, I don't want to say the word fun to work with, but cows can be a learning experience and can teach you a lot. Some people don't give a consideration to a cow as being an animal that can understand what they can. Healthy cows. Happy, healthy cows. <laughs> this is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross. On behalf of the American Folklife Center, and with special thanks to AFC intern Brian Jenkins for his help with this episode, thank you for listening to America Works. And that is it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mal Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.